you grab a seat. Again, good morning. I want to introduce you uh, maybe to someone you are not familiar with uh, this morning. There's a man uh, named John Perkins. Uh, and John Perkins has spent uh, the last 60 years uh, advocating for reconciliation in the church. He was born in the 1930s in Mississippi. In 1947, tragically, his older brother was murdered by a white police officer outside of a theater in his hometown. And after that event, he decided to leave Mississippi, harbored, in his words, great, uh, intense hatred for white people as a result of his experience. But then at the age of 27, uh, he um, came to know Jesus through a church in Southern California. He came to faith in Christ. uh, And some years later, he felt the Lord uh, call him. His heart had been changed, and he felt called to go back Uh, to his home in Mississippi and work towards reconciliation. Uh, In 1970, um, during a peaceful civil rights march, he was arrested and tortured in a Mississippi jail. But undeterred, he just continued to seek reconciliation in and through the church. And now, uh, today, he is almost uh, 90 years old. He's continued that work uh, over the decades. And he wrote a book uh, this past year called One Blood. Uh, and the subtitle is uh, His Final Words to the Church on Reconciliation. And in that book, he makes an appeal for reconciliation, quoting from Jesus' prayer, the prayer that we just read in John 17, that they may all be one, I and them, and you and me, that they may be one even as we are one. And it goes on to say that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. And this prayer uh, appears uh, several times in his book, and it's clear that it animates John Perkins' lifetime work towards reconciliation. And at its heart, this is what the ministry of reconciliation is all about. It's about bringing things together, what's divided and making them united, where there's hostility bringing peace. Biblical reconciliation, uh, we might say, is the recovery of our relationship with God and one another. Uh, To quote a a friend of mine, Mark Booker, he says it this way, I think is really helpful. He says, reconciliation is the means by which God is restoring the original unity of creation. The unity destroyed by sin as it preyed upon difference and created division, hostility, and violence. Reconciliation works across every line of human difference that has been exploited by sin and marred by injustice, including lines of race, sex, gender, class, and culture. That's the ministry of reconciliation. And I want to talk about that this morning because we're, we're going through the book of Acts. And as we come to Acts chapter 10 and 11, what we see is the Holy Spirit working out this ministry of reconciliation in and through the church. Uh, Beginning at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit initiated this process of reconciliation, this breaking through of divisions around culture and ethnicity and race and class. 
Acts 1.8, we've talked about how this is the seminal verse, right, for, for the book of Acts. That, that the gospel, we see, it goes forth from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. And that's what we see here in Acts 10. The Spirit pushing through another one of these barriers that the gospel might reach all people. Which gives us hope, I think, today. Hope for the divisions that sadly we see and we still face in our culture and even uh, sadly, in the church. And so what I want us to do today is, uh, today is look uh, together at this ministry of the Holy Spirit uh, of reconciliation. The ministry of the Spirit of reconciliation. And so I want to encourage you to open your Bible um, up to Acts chapter 10, or you can open your Bible app. And what I'd like to do is for us to look at what we can learn about the ministry of reconciliation from this account in Acts chapter, chapter 10. Now, it's, it's really 10 and 11, so I encourage you just to read through this yourself maybe this week. But I want to summarize kind of what happens here and then highlight a few particular verses. So first, the Holy Spirit uh, here in chapter 10 gives a vision to a man named, Pete, or a man named Cornelius. And Cornelius is a Roman centurion. He is a Gentile. He is a non-Jewish man. And what the vision does is uh, an angel appears and tells him that he needs to send for a Jewish man named Peter uh, in a city called Joppa. And so Cornelius sends for Peter. And then meanwhile, Peter, uh, a Jew, is on the roof of his house in Joppa, and he's praying, and he also has a vision. And in the midst of this vision, he sees this blanket Maybe you've heard of this, this is a very famous vision, right? This blanket descending from the sky or the sheet, and on it are all these different animals. But they're unclean animals. Like So to, to the Jewish people, there were animals that were clean that they were allowed to touch or to eat, and animals that were unclean. And all these animals were unclean. They were forbidden by law, by the Levitical law, to even touch these things, let alone eat them. And in a voice, the Lord's voice says to Peter in the vision, I want you to rise, I want you to kill these animals, and I want you to eat them. And Peter responds to this uh, basically by saying, no way. I would never violate this law. I would never touch anything that's unclean. And then the Lord says, you can touch these things, and you can do this because I have made these things clean. And so he's having this vision, and he's trying to understand what's happening. And then literally at that moment, somebody knocks on the door, and it's Cornelius' crew. They've come to Joppa, and they're looking for Peter. And so they come in, and they tell Peter what's happened on the Cornelius' side of the equation. And they spend the night in this house, the home of a Jew, these Gentile messengers. And then they all go back uh, to Cornelius' house. And they arrive there at Cornelius' house, and Peter goes in uh, to the home, and Basically, what Peter says is, uh, I think, encapsulated in verse 27. What happens is he says this. He says, God, he says this to Cornelius, God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. And later in verse 34, he says this. He says, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Now, let me kind of explain What's happening here a little bit? Because I think uh, it can be lost on us. Uh, kind of the extreme nature of what the Holy Spirit has just choreographed. Uh, basically what's just happened does not happen. Is not allowed 
to happen in first century culture, Jewish culture. Jews, for example, do not allow unclean Gentiles to come into their homes. And Jews, faithful Jews, do not go into the homes of Gentiles. This is forbidden. This is a boundary, in other words, you do not cross in the first century. So I still think even knowing that, it's hard for us to feel what this really means. And so I was thinking about it this day, today, um, this morning even, and just what might that feel like? What's the closest we could probably get to that? And the closest I could come up with is it'd be something like this. It would be as if a, an African-American goes into the home of a group of white people in the Jim Crow South and stands before them and says, God has told me to come tell you all about Jesus. Right? Now, you can imagine what that might have felt like, how awkward, how tense, how even dangerous that moment might have been because it crossed a boundary, right? And something similar is happening here in this moment. And so I want us to feel that tension because that's exactly what Luke is wanting to highlight here is that this boundary that you do not cross has been crossed. And that's why it took a supernatural act of the Holy Spirit on both sides, right? Notice that, what's happened here? On both sides, the Holy Spirit is working in these men's hearts who are worlds apart in every way to bring them together, right? To bring them together in this same moment, in this house. They're now standing side by side, face to face, Gentile and Jew. And so Peter begins to share the gospel with them. And he tells them about the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And in verse 44, he says this. It says this, that while Peter was still saying these things. So he's, he's mid-sermon, right? And then all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed. Because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus. And then they asked him to remain for some days. Now, can you imagine? Okay, I'm about halfway through the sermon right now. Let's just say the Holy Spirit, if, let's just imagine the Holy Spirit just fell right now and people started speaking in tongues all around the room, that some people started standing up repenting and exclaiming that they needed Jesus, and we just got that tub that we just put away from baptism last week, we drag it back in here, we start baptizing people right in the middle of the service. Right? That's what happened here. Didn't even finish the sermon. The Holy Spirit falls, and this incredible sequence of events unfolds. And I think one of the things that highlights for me is this is not about Peter giving this incredible, compelling sermon. <laughs> this is not about Cornelius deserving to hear the gospel. This is about God and about his spirit doing something incredible, moving in power in a remarkable way to draw both these men together in Christ. Right? That's what happens. Cornelius comes and this, these people come into faith in Christ and now they are together in Christ. And so what we see is the Spirit blowing through this barrier, right, of Jew and Gentile. And it wasn't easy. 
Right? Even after this, there's problems. Acts 11, if you go on to read, it tells us that Peter went back to Jerusalem, and he's so pumped. He goes back, and he's telling them all about this, this amazing thing that the, these Gentiles, the Spirit fell. They spoke in tongues. They were baptized. And he gets criticism from the church, from the church. You can't do that. You can't cross that line, Peter. And then Peter, even himself, later, he, he kind of waffles on this. We're told in Galatians 2, that Peter fell back into his old ways. That he, he began segregating himself off from the Gentile Christians before he was rebuked by the Apostle Paul. And in that moment, Paul says to him, what are you doing segregating out the body of Christ? You cannot do this. And he says, this is why. He says, you cannot do this because it is not in step with the truth of the gospel. Following Jesus in, in separate divided, homogenized little groups. He says, for any reason, race, ethnicity, money, culture, anything you can think of, any reason is not consistent with the gospel. That's what the Apostle Paul says. And so the idea of a Jewish church and a Gentile church, mm -mm. the idea of a white church and a black church and a Latino church or an Asian church, no. The idea of a rich church, and a poor church, not in line with the gospel. And the reality is that we tend to do that. <laughs> we tend to clump together in these little homogenized units. And Paul is saying that's not consistent with the gospel. And we see it all over the church today. So the question is why does Paul say that's so wrong? Why is it so wrong to allow that to happen in the church? In Ephesians 2, Paul says this, starting in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you Gentiles who were far off, who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of his hostility. I want to come back to that. Christ is broken down to this wall of hostility. How? By abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in these ordinances, right? Jew and Gentile, no longer separated by the law, that he might create in himself what? A new man, one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility between us. So Paul, it's interesting, he's talking about, he mentions this wall of hostility. And he's talking about a literal wall, right? He's talking about the literal wall of hostility that exists in Jesus' day. In Jesus' day, in the temple, there were different courts that were separated by walls. On the outer courts, the Gentiles were allowed to come in. God-fearers, as they were called, like Cornelius. But they couldn't come in any further than that court. And then there was a court for women, and then there was an inner court where faithful Jewish men were allowed to come. And if you entered past the wall that divided these different courts, <clears throat> the reality was that it was punishable by death. If you went into an area of the temple, you were not permitted to go. And so when Paul is talking about this wall of hostility being torn down, this is the image that he holds in his head. There was a literal wall of, of hostility. Now imagine as, if, as you came in this morning, as you came into the sanctuary, imagine on the door there was a sign that basically said, um, you cannot go any further if you're African American. 
You cannot go any further if you are Latino. You cannot go any further if you are white, if you are poor. Any reason that we might think of to separate, to erect walls, not in line with the truth of the gospel. That's what Paul has said. This is a place where we are to be welcoming those who are seeking Christ. There are no more walls. That's what's happened here. The Holy Spirit has knocked down those walls of hostility. And Christ, by his death on the cross, the wall's been torn down. Sin and its divisive, destructive power have been dealt with once and for all by Jesus. He has killed the hostility between us and God and the hostility between us and one another. The question is, why? Why has he done that? Why is this so important? Why is Paul hitting on this? You know, 10 and 11 in Acts is the biggest single unit in the book of Acts, the biggest narrative. It's highlighting how critically important this is. Why is this so important to God? It's so important because God is making one new man where before there were two. Where there was division, he is bringing unity. Where there were two, Jew and Gentile, he is now making one. And that is the church. The church is to be one. I pray that they would be one. They, they would become perfectly one, Jesus says. A new people, a new race, a new family. One, one people, God's people, created by the gospel. And this is good news. With the gospel, it's possible to have unity with diversity. That actually is possible. The cynical part of us may say that's not even possible. It is possible. In the gospel, it is possible. Not unity with diversity out of guilt or out of paternalism or out of some kind of sense of vengeance, but because in Christ we are one. Now, I found out this really interesting fact this week. Did you know that according to the Human Genome Project uh, that mapped out our DNA, 99.9% of our DNA is the same? Point one, that's the difference, 99.9% the same. You know what that says to me? It says our differences, they're real. But they're minuscule. <laughs> minuscule in comparison to the big picture. And what is truly, uh, what's true physically, I would say is absolutely true spiritually. We are the same because we are all created in the image of God. We are not many races. We are one race. We are one family. And it's when we look at one another and we see one another as brothers and sisters in Christ that we begin to see one another rightly as those made in the image of God. And the walls of hostility in our own hearts begin to come down. Um, some of you know that Langley and I lived in Tanzania for uh, a few years. Uh, we were both on staff with, with Young Life, uh, working with high school kids there and uh, it was interesting when we got there, what, what I found out was that my supervisor, my boss uh, in the ministry, was actually a, a black Tanzanian man named Deo. And Deo was a, an amazing guy. But, but to be honest, when, when I found this out, because honestly, of all the mission organizations that I knew there in Dar es Salaam, where we were, none of them had this arrangement, right? Foreigners come in as missionaries, and foreigners oversee those foreigners. That's how it works, typically. 
And here was my supervisor, this black Tanzanian man named Deo. And I have to tell you, uh, to my great embarrassment, I, I was very skeptical about this. <clears throat> In fact, I think I was more than just arrogant. I think if I'm totally honest, just putting it all out there, there were things within my heart uh, that had very much to do with some racist attitudes and some cultural elitism, right? That I thought somehow, um, because I'm an American and he's African, eh, I don't know if this is going to work. Or because I have a college degree and he doesn't, he does, his English is kind of broken. I, I had all these things in a list, honestly, of why I felt superior to Deo. And I was so wrong. I was so wrong. Over time, the Lord opened my eyes to the fact that this man, who was so different from me, was so wise and so faithful and such a humble and gifted leader in the kingdom of God. And that I had so much to learn from him. And so as I spent time with him, I began to give thanks that the Holy Spirit had led me to Deo. That he had led us into this relationship for this short season of life together. And I thank God for that because it humbled me. You know, it humbles you when you begin to realize that you need other people in your life. And even more so when they're different from you. And Deo was so different from me. But it helped me. It humbled me because it helped me see how much I need others who are different from me to understand how much I need Christ. To see myself rightly. And I'm just going to tell you, I feel convicted by the Holy Spirit in this area of my life. And I confess that I have a lot to learn. And I want to listen more to those whose life experience is very different than me. I want to learn how to walk in humility with my brothers and sisters who are coming at life from, from, zero, from very different places because we have way more in common. We have way more in common than we imagine. And it really is because the gospel has made us one. The gospel has made us one. Jesus' pray, prayer was, Lord, may we be one. And so the question, I think, for us is, what does it look like for apostles to be a place where God's prayer is answered? Where we would be one. To be a place where people get a glimpse of heaven, a glimpse of Revelation 7, where people of every nation and ethnicity and language are one, a diverse community, living in unity, worshiping together, sharing life together, a community where no one would ever feel as if this place is not for them, a community with no walls of hostility. That's what we want to see here. It's not easy. It's not easy. It's going to take a lot of hard work on our part, a lot of intentionality. But I think even more than that, it's going to take a move of the Holy Spirit. It's what it took in Acts 10. I think it's what it's going to take in our church. It's what it's going to take in our city. So that the Holy Spirit would move us, the spirit of reconciliation. And so I, I want to draw two quick things from Acts 10 that I want to give us to consider. If we want to see the Spirit bring reconciliation at Apostles and in the city of Houston, there's two things I think we can take from Acts 10 that we can do. The first one is this. We need to pray. We need to pray. 
You know, Cornelius didn't know Christ, but we're told that he was praying to God when the vision came. Peter was on the roof praying when the Spirit spoke to him. Both these men had made their hearts available to the Spirit, and the Spirit moved in them. If we want to see true reconciliation within our own community and city, we need to pray and we need to ask God to help us. Um, to quote from that book I mentioned by John Perkins, One Blood, he says this. He says, the church in America has much to lament. Our separation because of race, our misuse of scripture to justify a system of slavery, the multitude of missed opportunities for the kingdom, our short-sighted vision of justice and the gospel, and our lack of contrition for both our collective and our personal sin. As followers of Jesus, we have fallen short of God's vision. We've fallen short of God's vision for his family, the church. And we need to confess. We need to confess our failure and repent. G.K. Chesterton once said, it isn't that they can't see the solution. It's so often that they can't see the problem. And I think the first step for many of us is admitting that there's a problem. And even being bold and courageous enough to say, I have a problem. We have a problem. Because it's the first step. To admit it is the first step to God actually beginning to do the work he needs to do in our hearts and in his church. Psalm 32 tells us that blessed are the forgiven. And so it's an invitation, right, for us to, to confess because it leads to forgiveness, which leads to healing and joy. And that's what we long for. And so what, my question to you simply is this. Are you praying for reconciliation? Are we praying for reconciliation? Do we have the courage to be honest before the Lord about our failure and our need for his help in this area? So first thing, pray. Second thing, if we want to see the Spirit bring reconciliation, we need to act we need to act. We need to take action. The Holy Spirit met Peter and Cornelius in moments of prayer, but then he called them to action. Cornelius had to act in faith and invite a Jew into his home. Peter had to act in faith and go into the home of a Gentile. They both had to take action. They both had to move towards one another, right, in faith. They both had to take action. It's really interesting to me that in Acts 10, what we see uh, is this Jewish-Gentile barrier, right? It's broken down because uh, they cross over the thresholds of each other's homes. Isn't that interesting? Gentiles come into a Jewish home. Jews come into a Gentile home. They're actually coming into each other's home. And I think there's something really beautiful and simple there for us to take. When we act, what can I do? What actions can I take? that the crossing of this barrier, this huge barrier, Gentile and Jew, actually began with two men entering into each other's homes, more or less. And look, the challenges of racial and economic and cultural prejudice and division are both personal and systemic. And so we ought to take action to challenge them wherever we encounter them. It's not just personal. However, I do think that it's really important for us to begin at a personal level, right? I believe reconciliation begins for each of us right where we are in our homes, in our marriages, in our families, 
in our neighborhood. Someone told me that um, Terrell, uh, who was the pastor here before me, he, he used to say that racial reconciliation begins around your dinner table. I think that's true. Who do you eat with? Who do you eat with? It'll tell us a lot. If we want to see the spirit of reconciliation, it won't happen here in any meaningful way until it's happening in our homes. And so we need to pray. And we need to act. I want to end with just a a word of encouragement for us because I see God doing things in this area around our community. Um, On Wednesday, we kicked off Alpha. And it it was a great start to our next Alpha course. And as we gathered, I was really encouraged because at one point I looked around the room and, and I was excited because there were several folks of color in the room. It wasn't just a room full of, of white people, right? And I looked around and I saw um, folks who were Latino and black and Asian, and, and I saw men and women, and I saw folks in their 20s, and I saw folks in their 80s. And it just stood out to me. It stood out to me because, at least in my experience, that's fairly rare, at least in the church, at least in kind of the influence of the church. And I see God moving in that. I mean, that's amazing what happened on Wednesday. And I think it's a glimpse of what God will do in years to come in our community, that we uh, would be a community where that's not an anomaly, that's not unusual, that that's not rare, <laughs> that this would be a place where people come and experience unity in Christ. And within that unity, there is diversity. That that would be a beautiful thing and that the Spirit would do that through Christ. That God would take us from a diverse group of people and make us one. Make us one. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, your prayer was simple and changed the world. as we are one, that they would be one. And so, Lord, we long for that. Lord, we have differences. And, Lord, those differences, if we're totally honest, they make us uncomfortable sometimes. And, Lord, we just need you to do a work in our hearts to help us understand who we are and to have a vision for what it means to be one in Christ, united and not divided. And Lord, we know that it's going to take more than one prayer or one act, one sermon. And so, Lord, we pray that you would lead us in this, that you would place this on our hearts, that it would be something we talk about, something that we listen to others about, those who are different than us. And, Lord, that there would never, never be a moment where anyone ever feels like there might be a sign on the door that says you are not welcome in this place that all would be welcome in the name of Christ. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.